This is lecture number 15 on the Book of Kings by Dr. Robert Bonoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 15. Let's look at Judah under Kings Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. We read of Jehoshaphat's accession in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 24. You read in this passage, Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of his father David. Of course, father means forefather. And Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. But then you see the narrative shifts to the north, so you don't read much about Jehoshaphat. You have to go to 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 41, to pick up that story. There you read, Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, became king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, who was king of Israel. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. So from 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 41 through verse 50, you have a discussion of Jehoshaphat, and as you notice, there is not much told in Kings about Jehoshaphat. It's only a few verses. There's quite a bit more told about him, however, in the book of Chronicles. You look at the parallels in Second Chronicles chapter 17, verse 1, through chapter 20, verse 37, and you can see there's a great deal more about Jehoshaphat in Chronicles than there is in Kings. I think the reason for that probably is that in Kings, the emphasis at this time is on the situation in the north with Omri and Ahab, with the entrance of Baal worship into the northern kingdom and the ministry of Elijah and that sort of thing. In comparison to what's going on there in the north, Jehoshaphat is of relative minor importance. So the writer of Kings doesn't give us a great deal of information about Jehoshaphat. Chronicles, however, tells the story of Judah alone. Remember, in Chronicles, you don't have many references to the northern kingdom. Chronicles is interested in, really, the dynasty of David and the line of David. So you just have the history of Judah. The north is only mentioned when something happens in the south that's related to what happens in the north. So Jehoshaphat is of greater interest to the chronicler than he is to the writer of Kings. Just in connection with that, Elijah, for example, is mentioned only once in Chronicles, and Elisha isn't mentioned at all. So you see how a focus on the north was not in the interest of the writer of Chronicles. But if you compare the kings and chronicles that count, Jehoshaphat stands out as an important king. He was true to the Lord. He had a long reign. He was 35 years old and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. So he had a long reign. He was basically a godly man, but he did make some serious errors if you look at his life as a whole. Both Asa and Jehoshaphat maintained peaceful relations with the northern kingdom. I don't think that in itself is objectionable, but Jehoshaphat goes further than that and makes a close alliance with the north. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, or Joram, marries Athaliah, who is the daughter of Ahab and probably Jezebel, although her mother, that is, Athaliah's mother, is not explicitly mentioned. Athaliah is probably the daughter of Jezebel and certainly the daughter of Ahab. You read of that in Second Kings chapter 8, verse 18. This is speaking of Jehoram, king of Judah, who is Jehoshaphat's son. And it says about him, He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, 
for he married the daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, marries Athaliah, and this is the ultimate outworking of that. If it hadn't been for God's intervention, it would have been the destruction of the house of David. Eventually, Athaliah attempted to wipe out the house of David, and only Joash was preserved, so that line of David continued, in spite of Athaliah's murderous attempts to wipe it out. In Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat is rebuked by Jehu the seer, not the king of the north, but Jehu the seer for his alliance with Ahab. If you look at Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2, you read, Jehu the seer, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him, that is Jehoshaphat, and he said to the king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is on you. In the context, the point of that statement to Jehoshaphat was his alliance with Ahab. That alliance is described in 1 Kings chapter 22, and we've already looked at that chapter briefly, where Jehoshaphat joins Ahab in going up to Ramoth Gilead to fight against the king of Aram, or the king of Syria. Now in that chapter, that is in 1 Kings chapter 22, you have that interesting exchange when Jehoshaphat says that he wants to hear from the Lord as to whether they should go up to Ramoth Gilead or not. Ahab wants to go up, and Jehoshaphat's not so certain that's a good idea. Then in verse 5, chapter 22, 1 Kings, Jehoshaphat said to the king, First, let's seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? And that's where Micaiah comes, and Ahab says, About Micaiah, I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me but always bad. Jehoshaphat says, Oh, the king shouldn't say that. But they call Micaiah and ask him what they should do. And in verse 15, when he arrives, the king asks him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, Micaiah answers, for the Lord will give it into your hands. Now, he must have said that with an expression of sarcasm or something like that, because the response of the king is, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Well, then, Micaiah gives the real message, and it's quite clear that the real message is not good for Ahab. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel then turns to Jehoshaphat and says, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good for me, but only bad? It's in that connection, finally, that you come to that verse that you were asked to write about, your little discussion of the lion spirit that we read about in verse 22, where the lion spirit says, I will go out and be a lion spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. I don't know that we should take a lot of time going into that. I think you all did fairly well in the writing that you did. You did a pretty good job. I think the point is this. The prophets of Ahab were already committed to the lie. 
and it seems that what happens here is they are hardened, and they are already predetermined in their evil way. Whether Micaiah sees a vision or not, if you go back to verse 19, Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all his hosts standing around him. It is a visionary context where he sees this unnamed lying spirit go forth. Whether the vision is to be taken symbolically or literally, commentators disagree. I think in either case, the lying spirit sent by the Lord is to be understood as signifying that even what Satan does is ultimately under the sovereignty of God's decrees. That means the evil actions of men and angels are not excluded from God's decrees. They do not operate independently of what God wants them to do. I think we get that idea clearly taught in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where we read, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, here you have wicked men who nail Christ to the cross, and they're responsible for their actions. And yet that is done by the set purpose and foreknowledge of God, as we read in this statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, which, by the way, was said by the Apostle Peter. Now, I think you're immediately up against the problem of how to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And particularly, you have to be careful when talking about the evil acts of man, that they don't make God the author of sin. I think, ultimately, there's a mystery there that one cannot fully explain. Scripture makes it absolutely clear that all things are under God's control, including the evil acts of men. Yet, man is responsible for his evil acts, and certainly God is not the author of sin, yet he's sovereign. So I'm not sure you could do much more than leave some of those things in a certain tension, you might say. In a sense that you cannot fully harmonize or explain all this, yet Scripture is very clear that God is sovereign, yet man is responsible. Well, following up on this, let's look at what Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 9 says, and I quote, If a prophet is enticed to utter prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. Well, I think, again, it's the same sort of thing as divine hardening, much like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He was set in his evil ways. Much of Romans 1 says that God gives people over to their evil lusts, where their continuation in that course is, in a certain sense, God's judgment upon them. But to get into that Ezekiel passage would take us about a half hour and take us astray from where we are. So I think we better leave it at that. All right, those are some comments about Jehoshaphat. Let's go on to Jehoram, his son. Second Kings chapter 8, verses 16 to 24 are paralleled in Second Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 to 20. In Second Kings chapter 8, verse 16, you read, In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. So he's 32 years old when he succeeds Jehoshaphat, and he reigns for eight years. His wife, remember, was Athaliah, daughter of Ahab, and presumably Jezebel. 
And in his reign, the results of Jehoshaphat's compromise with Ahab begins to be realized. When he took the throne, we learn from Second Chronicles chapter 21, verses 2-4, to Jehoram killed his brothers. In Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 2, Jehoram's brothers, sons of Jehoshaphat, were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father had given them many gifts of silver and gold and articles of value, as well as fortified cities in Judah, but he had given the kingdom to Jehoram because he was his firstborn son. When Jehoram established himself firmly over his father's kingdom, he put all his brothers to the sword along with some of the princes of Israel. So Jehoram kills his brothers. During his reign, the Edomites and Libna, a city, revolted. In Second Kings chapter 8, verse 20, we read, In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. Down in verse 22, we read, Libna revolted at this time. That seems to be a place near the Philistine border. We read that Jehoram died by an incurable disease sent by the Lord. We learn that from Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 18. It's interesting. Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 18 says, The Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease in the course of time. At the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of his disease, and he died in great pain. The people made no fire in his honor as they did for his fathers. And then verse 20 makes this statement, He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David. Not a popular king by any means, so he passes away, and Chronicles says, to no one's regret. That's Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 20. How would you like that to be your epithet? All right, Roman numeral three is the divided kingdom from Jehu to Hosea. Now, just to orient ourselves again, this is a major dividing point. Number one is the United Kingdom under Solomon, and that's First Kings chapters 1 to 11. And then you get the divided kingdom. Before Jehu is the second major dividing point, you might say, in the kingdom period of Israel's history. At 931 B.C., after Solomon is a major dividing point. So we go from the beginning of the divided kingdom up to Jehu. We start with Jehu and take the divided kingdom forward to Hosea. Hosea is the last of the kings in the north, and that brings us to the fall of the northern kingdom in 722. So under this, we have two dynasties. We have the dynasty of Jehu, and then the succession of those last kings after 841 B.C. So the first dynasty is that of Jehu. Not a whole lot other than that 841 revolution. That gives you sort of a dividing point that is the same for both the north and the south, because Jehu killed the king of the north and the king of the south in 841. So you're starting over in both kingdoms subsequently. All right, A is the dynasty of Jehu. Jehu's dynasty is the fourth dynasty of the northern kingdom. Remember, in the south, you've had one dynasty all the way through. But in the north, you first had Jeroboam the first, then you had Basha, then Omri, and now Jehu as far as kings that established dynasties that had successors. 
So again, Jeroboam I, Basha, Omri, and Jehu are the dynasties. That is up to this point. This is the fourth, and Jehu's dynasty is the longest one. It lasts about 80 years. When Jehu took over the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom was quite weak. But by the fourth king in his line, which is Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom is prosperous, and it's a strong nation. So under Jehu's dynasty, things in the northern kingdom develop in a very positive way as far as strength and prosperity is concerned. Not, however, as far as spiritual things are concerned. All right, one is the revolution of Jehu. This is Second Kings chapters 9 and 10 and Second Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 to 12. We've already looked at capital A, and that's Jehu being anointed king. And we looked at that at Second Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. That's where Elisha sends one of the company of the prophets to Jehu and announces to him that the Lord has chosen him to be king of the north. And capital B is Jehu kills Joram and Ahaziah in that Second Kings chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. We touched on that already. That occurs after a battle with Hazael at Ramoth Gilead, in which Joram was wounded. There are a number of fulfilled predictions in this chapter. If you look at Second Kings chapter 9, verse 26, you read, Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. This is Jehu speaking. It seems that what you have here is this prophecy fulfilled intentionally. It completes the fulfillment of the prophecy against Ahab that was spoken by Elijah at 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 19. When Elijah says, this is what the Lord says. This is concerning robbing Naboth of his life and of his vineyard. And Elijah said to Ahab at that time, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. But Ahab repented, and the Lord said that his son would suffer. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 29, we have the following. The Lord says to Elijah, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. So here in Second Kings chapter 9, verse 26, you find the ultimate outworking of that when Joram, Ahab's son, is cast on the plot of ground of Naboth's vineyard. In Second Kings chapter 9, verses 30 to 37, you have a fulfillment of the prediction concerning that of Jezebel. And that goes back to 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 23, where Elijah says the following, And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And then you see here in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu went to Jezreel, and Jezebel is there, and he has her thrown from the window, and she is killed. And verse 36 says, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah, the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. And that happened literally. 
And as we noticed earlier, Jehu's revolution affected Judah as well. It wasn't only the northern kingdom. Jehu killed Ahaziah, king of Judah. Second Kings chapter 9, verse 27, we read, When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, that is, the killing of Joram, he fled up the road to Beth-Hagan. Jehu chases him, shouting, Kill him too! And they wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Iblium, but he escaped to Megiddo, and Ahaziah dies there. So both Joram and Ahaziah are killed, the king of the north and the king of the south. And then Jehu attempts to wipe out Baal worship, although in the first part of chapter 10 you have the rest of Ahab's family killed, including some relatives of Ahaziah from the south. Look at Second Kings chapter 10, verse 13. He met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? And they said, We are relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the families of the king and of the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Beth-Eked, forty-two men. He left no survivor. So Jehu not only wipes out Ahab's family, he also kills a number of relatives of Ahaziah's line as well. Then he turns on the Baal worship, and under the pretense of himself honoring Baal, he gathers all these followers of Baal. And when he has them together, he turns on them and has them killed. That's the latter part of chapter 10. The result is Baal worship is destroyed by Jehu in Israel. You read that in Second Kings chapter 10, verse 28. Quote, so Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Quote. But remember, Athaliah is still in the south, and the influence of Ahab through Athaliah of false worship still remains there. In Assyrian records as well, we mentioned that earlier, there is an inscription of what's known as the Black Obelisk, in which Shalmaneser III tells of taking tribute from Jehu. That's where I mentioned this earlier, Jehu was called indirectly the son of Omri. He wasn't really the son of Omri, he began a revolution and he started a new dynasty. But Omri was so well known among the Assyrian people that since Jehu is the king of the northern kingdom, he's referred to as the son of Omri. But the black obelisk was found in 1846. It's six and a half feet high. It tells of the military exploits of Shalmaneser III. It has pictures of the payment of tribute from five different regions in relief on this obelisk, and one of those five pictures, I think we passed this along in the book before, was of Jehu bowing before Shalmaneser and paying his tribute to him. So Jehu kills Joram and Ahaziah, and capital C is Jezebel is killed, and capital D is Ahab's family is killed, as we have discussed. I've been discussing all this and didn't mention C and D, so I bring them up here. So Jehu's revolution was successful. I think we would say he did a good thing in destroying the house of Ahab, but it seems that at a certain point he was a little too zealous from what he was commissioned to do. He was commissioned to destroy the house of Ahab. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. But I think when he slew the 42 relatives of Ahaziah visiting Samaria, that certainly was unwarranted. When you look at the prophet Hosea, chapter 1, verse 4, 
you have a reference that indicates judgment on Jehu in spite of the certain good things that he did. There was a mixture in his actions. Hosea chapter 1 verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So even though he was commissioned to wipe out the house of Ahab, he went beyond that, and for that the Lord says that judgment is going to come on the house of Jehu. All right, number two is the successors of Jehu, and I have four listed there. Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah. I'm not going to say much about these kings. Jehoahaz is in Second Kings chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. In the nine verses there, we're told he reigned for 17 years. He did evil. He followed in the sins of Jeroboam's son Nebat. During his reign, Israel was threatened by Syria, or Aram, under Hazael and Ben-Hadad. So during the time of Jehoahaz, Syria is a threat. There's not a whole lot, however, told about Jehoahaz. Second king is Joash, or Jehoash. Both forms of the name are used. In Second Kings, chapter 13, verse 10, to chapter 14, verse 16, we have this paralleled in Second Chronicles, chapter 25, verses 17 to 24. Probably the most significant thing during his reign is that Elisha died. Second Kings, chapter 13, verse 20, we looked at that verse earlier, Elisha died and was buried. But it's in the same chapter where Jehoash says of Elisha, My father, my father, that's in verse 14, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. But Elisha died, you see, in verse 20, during the time of Joash. Prior to his death, he had prophesied that Joash would have partial success against the Syrians. See, the Syrians had threatened in the time Jehoahaz, his father, and Elisha says Joash would have partial success against them. That was after he had struck the ground only three times instead of five or six times, which seems to then have been symbolic of moderate success rather than complete success. He didn't seem to have enough enthusiasm, and so you read in verse 18, Strike the ground, Elisha tells him, but he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. So he'll have moderate success rather than complete success against the Arameans. Another significant thing during the reign of Joash is his defeat of Amaziah of Judah. Amaziah of Judah had challenged Joash to battle, which was a foolish thing to do because the northern kingdom was stronger than the southern kingdom. But Amaziah sort of became proud because of his victory over the Edomites and thought, this is in Second Kings chapter 14, and thought because of that victory he could go up and fight the northern kingdom successfully. Jehoash, or Joash, warned him about that, but Amaziah foolishly persisted. So you read in verse 12 of Second Kings 14, Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem, a section 600 feet long. 
He took all the gold and the silver and all the articles found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. He took hostages and returned to Samaria. So that's one of the low points, you might say, in the relationship between the north and the south. But Jehoash is successful in turning back this attack of Amaziah of Judah and even takes plunder from Jerusalem. So that brings us to capital C, and this is Jeroboam II, a major king in the Jehu dynasty. Again, we're not told much about Jeroboam II. Notice 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29, these seven verses. Yet, if you look at verse 23, you read, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. That's a long reign, 41 years. You were told about it in six or seven verses. Much like Omri, who was a very significant northern king, but about which the scripture tells us very little, Jeroboam II was very successful. You notice what it does say, he extended the power of Israel territorially to its earlier frontiers. Look at verse 25. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but verse 25 says, He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Label Hamath to the Sea of the Aravah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Yes, that is the same Jonah that preaches to Assyria later. Now, Label Hamath is way above Damascus to the north, and the Sea of the Arabah is the Dead Sea. So he extended the northern kingdom's border way to the north and way to the south to the Dead Sea, about parallel with Jerusalem. That was done in accordance with a prophecy of Jonah, son of Amittai, which is the Jonah of the book of Jonah. You read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and it says there, quote, Jonah, son of Amittai, end quote. Now, I think it's significant that you have this reference in historical narrative in the book of Kings to the prophet Jonah as being a real historical figure. There is a great tendency, even among certain evangelical scholars, unfortunately, to take the book of Jonah as fiction rather than history. And I think one of the strong objections to doing that is the fact that 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 does make it very clear that there was a man named Jonah, son of Amittai, who lived during the time of Jeroboam II, and who prophesied, and his prophecy was fulfilled. So he's not just an imaginary figure or some sort of fictional story told to make a theological point or whatever. He's a historical individual. But Jeroboam II became the outstanding king in the northern kingdom. I don't say that from a spiritual standpoint, but from an economic, political, military standpoint. He extended the borders, and Israel prospered. During his reign, Amos, Hosea, and Jonah were prophets. Not only Jonah, but as I mentioned, Amos and Hosea. We learn a lot more about what was going on in the northern kingdom from reading the books of Amos and Hosea than we do from this narrative in Kings, because it's so brief in Kings but when you read Amos and Hosea, you find all is not well spiritually in the north. There may have been prosperity, but the prosperity was at the expense of the poor. There was a lot of dishonesty, oppression, social injustice, 
and religious apostasy. I mean, that's the picture you get in Amos and Hosea. All right, capital D is Zechariah, the last king of the Jehu dynasty, and this we read about in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 8 to 20. He had a very short reign. You notice that in verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned six months. Only six months. And we read, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his fathers had done. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He attacked him in front of the people, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. The other events of Zechariah's reign are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. So the word of the Lord spoken to Jehu was fulfilled. So here's another fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy was that Jehu's descendants would sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so you have these four generations. Jehu, Jehoahaz the first, Joash the second, Jeroboam the second, the third, and Zechariah, finally, the fourth, just four generations after Jehu. It's interesting that with the downfall of Jehu's dynasty, the northern kingdom enters a period of political instability. You have five more kings in the northern kingdom, and all but one of them was assassinated from this point on. The one exception is Menahem. And the other thing is that from the strength and wealth of the reign of Jeroboam II, you move very quickly in the northern kingdom to the decline and fall at the hands of the Assyrians. So Zechariah's reign would have been 753 to 752 B.C., as we said, six months. The end of Jeroboam's second reign was 753 B.C. The northern kingdom was gone by 722 B.C. So you see, you're speaking 30 years, and the northern kingdom goes from the height of its prosperity and strength into captivity. So, Zechariah rules six months, Shalom one month, Menachem ten years, Pekahiah two years, Pekah twenty years, Hosea nine years, but in thirty years the northern kingdom is gone and racked by a series of assassinations. All right, I think maybe we can stop at this point. Uh, capital B would be Judah during the century after 841. We talked about the northern kingdom after 841. We'll talk about Judah in the century after 841. And then on next week, we'll pick up with Judah in the century after 841 and then go on next week to the final days of the northern kingdom and the last century of Judah and see how far we can get. I think we can get pretty well along next week. Not sure we can do all that, but we will certainly try. That's the end of lecture number 15 on Kings by Dr. Robert Bonoy of Biblical Theological Seminary.